0: Good evening and welcome to Gradcast, the official podcast and radio show by the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University. I am your host tonight, Gavin Tolomei, and co host to me is. Ariel Fram. That's me. Yeah. Uh, tonight we are joined by biology PhD candidate Susan Anthony. How are you doing tonight?
1: I'm doing great. It's nice to be back uh, in the studio again.
0: Oh, that is f- fantastic. And. Uh, we are here to talk about your research looking at uh, arachnids.
1: Yes, actually, uh, I sometimes have to apologize to people or, you know, warning, yes, my presentations, what I talk about will be filled with spiders and mites and uh, really cool little critters called pseudoscorpions, which are tiny, tiny, tiny scorpions, but without the stinging tail. They're actually quite funny. Cool. Um, and. uh <laughs> Yeah, so I, I try to let people know, like, no, this is this is cool stuff. Don't don't run away just yet. Hear me out.
0: <laughs> so, any of you with a little bit of a fear of spice, like, hold on a minute, hold on. I know you're very brave out there. So, uh, so what is it that brought you to that uh, kind of research?
1: Well, actually, um, that's a good question. I haven't not been asked that for a long time, and it really comes down to uh, a lot of serendipitous uh, meetings at uh, a conference. So, my my background is actually in marine biology, and that's. What I hope my future will be in as well, and I was always just perplexed at um, how organisms and ecosystems change over the seasons. Because you go from, uh, well, I was doing a lot of diving, and an animal that um, kind of you know didn't have a lot of predators all of a sudden would be eaten by a kelp crab. And you think, well, kelp crab, it's it's an herbivore. It's like, well, no, when the kelp is gone. It switches to being like a predator, and I'm just like that. So much goes on when we're not watching, and we can't because huh. winter in the ocean is hard. It's very dangerous to get out there because the waves can be kind of treacherous, and the currents are very strong. So there's a whole world happening in winter that we never, we just don't know what's happening. Yeah. Here it's under the snow. There's a whole like, and most people say, you know, if you ask them. Well, you think of all the mosquitoes around here and all the flies and the ants and all these things you deal with in the summer. I ask them, you know, where do they go? What happens to them in winter? And people are like, I don't know. I just don't see them. And it's like, (laughs) exactly, what are they doing? Um, And it was over, I think there was a few glasses of wine at this point at a social event at a conference that I happened to speak with, who is now my current supervisor. And we were just like, like, what's going on? And that's, I found out that is actually his research subject and something he's been doing for over a decade. This is Dr. Brent Sinclair, and he he's usually used, studies insects and how do they overwinter. And he knew, he knew my background is in field biology, and he said, well, one untapped uh, field, if you will, of this um, winter biology is arachnids because no one seems to want to work with them. I don't know why, but uh, and he's like, "Hey, you wanna you wanna learn about arachnids and what they do in the winter?" like he's like, "You're okay with spiders, right?" It's like, "Yeah, fine." And he's like, "Yeah, so do you want to come and do this?" And I hemmed and hawed for a bit, but uh, I took on the challenge, and here I am, <laughs> wow. almost ready to defend my my thesis. Yeah,
2: you know, it's I, it's it, that's amazing to think that a whole ecosystem, so to speak, is just, we don't really, really know much about it, and it's only because it's inconvenient for us.
1: Yeah, and trust me, I can. we can talk about how inconvenient it can be, but it, it is absolutely true, and I mean, things, some things um, overwinter in so many different ways, and it's not just sort of one thing that, well, what, what do bugs do? It's like, well, which one? <laughs> what do spotters do? Well, which one? So. There's a lot of questions out there, and uh, a lot of different uh, adaptations. So our our lab doesn't just study the ecosystem of it, but we also study the molecular side of things. So what's going on inside the animal? Because there are a lot of animals, even some around here, that freeze solid and then thaw out in spring and survive. Hmm. So that's yeah. being able to do that is quite impressive. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and so we're kind of looking at how can they do that.
2: Yeah. So so I guess the question naturally is which one?
1: <laughs> <laughs> which one? You
2: said <laughs> it's really complicated. So when you ask about uh, how, do, how do these animals do it, you have to say mm-hmm. which one. And then even Every. when you get to the arachnid level, which one? So yep. which one have you studied?
1: Well, actually, um, this is a funny story. I went up to the Arctic and uh, I wish I could study the winter Overwintering in the Arctic arachnids. However, trying to get money to do something that people are just like, are you even going to be able to succeed in that? And no one's done it, so we can't say we will. <laughs> uh, we weren't able to follow up on our summer collections and our summer research on the Arctic spiders and the Arctic su- pseudoscorpion. I'd love to talk to you about those, but we actually have... Um, <laughs> Again, another serendipitous event. I was out in a really mild uh, February or March, three years back, I think, and I was out looking for spiders and I found a couple, but I found a whole bunch of um, little red velvet mites. And so they're about um, maybe a millimeter to two millimeters in length, so they're big enough for a mite. And they're bright red, so couldn't miss them. And they actually have so many hairs on their body, they look like velvet. They've mm. become kind of my favorite animal because they're just, they're pretty adorable. And I, as is what we do in our lab, if we find something new and interesting and in enough numbers, we'll bring them back to the lab and freeze them and see what happens. So I, I did that I brought them back not knowing what species they were or anything about them and I froze them I said okay that's interesting they freeze at about you know minus eight that's cool and then they just started getting up and walking around again and this to <laughs> someone in in, um, in who studies mites and spiders and even in insects this is a rare occasion to find a new uh, freeze tolerant so tolerates freezing uh, organism, but there has been no account of a freeze of freeze tolerance in any mite, even in the ones mm-hmm. you find in the Antarctic. They instead just really? prevent freezing down to like minus thirty.
2: Oh, okay. So they okay. just okay. avoid so freezing. are yeah. methods to go about it. Exactly. You can just avoid freezing as best you can. As
1: best you can. So you or do that, or just
0: let it happen it's and
2: like, then survive. Do we it tolerate
0: the pain, or do we just find a way to numb the pain as much as possible? Yeah, yes. kind of.
1: And it, it has to do with, um, you know, how long you're going to be frozen, because you think about it in the Antarctic, although it's cold, it's very cold, it'd be cold for so long. So you'd spend a lot of your life in sort of a quasi suspended animation. So this would be frozen, but you still have a little bit of, you, believe it or not, you still are metabolizing, you still are using energy. So if you're going to be frozen for you know, 9, 10 months out of the year, that's a lot of energy you have to gain in those months when you can get up and move around and eat in order to survive that long time. So mm-hmm. it, you can understand how it wouldn't be a really good idea to adapt that. Whereas here, you could kind of get by storing up energy and then spending the winter like other organisms do in a hibernation state but this time you're you're solidly frozen
2: Jeez. yeah do they eat a lot when they are <laughs> not frozen is they like constantly packing it in so that like in case one at one point they get frozen
0: i feel like they're just the bears of the insect world <laughs> just go one get really fat and then nine months later okay and i'm just gonna lay down and freeze and just wait for winter to pass
1: well actually it is a better um a better way to save energy is to be frozen because you use very, 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 very little metabolism. Whereas if you are a hibernating insect, which is known as diapause or an arachnid, uh, you, you produce more, like you use up more of your energy store. So again, something else we study in our lab is what happens if, uh, you know, temperature fluctuations because temperature can affect how fast your metabolism is. So if you're having warmer winters, will you run out of your energy stores before you can make it to spring when the food is is back again? So there's there's so many things you have to think about about overwintering when you have these are and these are what we study in the lab are known as ectotherms. Some people call it cold-blooded, but uh, it's cold-blooded when it's cold outside, but it's warm-blooded when it's warm outside, right? So the difference between, say, you and I and these these ectotherms is we control our body temperature, we're always around the same temperature, whereas they have no control over it. So their body is whatever temperature the outside world is.
0: Oh, wow. I'm just trying to picture. So they're, they're pretty much at the mercy of whatever the climate is that yeah. they've been either adapted to or stuck in at yes. that point. So. Have you noticed um, looking at ones in the Arctic who are probably more have to deal with colder temperatures? Are there any others that you've looked at outside the Arctic who probably have to deal with, like, stuck with warmer temperatures and see how they differ molecularly and at a more, I want to say, macro-sized? <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, well, our lab itself has looked mostly at the colder things, uh, colder side of things. Uh, I actually have some side projects working on the warmer side of things. Most other, uh, We have other labs who are interested in that. They work on desert lizards, desert uh, spiders and insects and all that. I mean, imagine being a, um, a scorpion in the desert, right? Uh, that's where you, you learn. You have a whole new avenue of research of nocturnality, these animals that avoid the heat by coming out at night only. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a, lo- there's, it's a whole other mesh of molecules and whole bunch of new adaptations required to deal with heat. But um, what is surprising is in the Arctic, the animals I looked at, I looked at them in the summer. So I looked at uh, a bunch of spiders. This was in the Yukon and Greenland. Um, I got to travel to those places. I'm just going to plug that as, you know, come to grad <laughs> school, see the world. Uh, <laughs> uh, these spiders, I collected in the summer and it gets kind of warm in the Arctic. And that's the surprising thing is that, and they have a very short summer, so you can only do work in the field really in the Arctic for you know mid June till end of August, um, and they have to use that all of that time to eat, reproduce, grow, all these things that they do because they're you know winter is a time of food shortage and trying to walk around and find mates is dangerous at least that's what we presume and so they have to be out and about no matter what the temperature is and as as you can imagine there are no nights in the arctic so even if it gets over 30 degrees (laughs) and 30 degrees to something in the arctic that it does get over 30 degrees in the arctic on the ground oh my god i yeah i've experienced some very warm days out there and these animals have to be out and about because they cannot waste a moment of time. And, yeah, no no nighttime to to wait until. So not only do they have to be really cold adapted, but they have to be really warm adapted as well. So that's a lot of uh, <laughs> lot of adaptations.
2: Makes me wonder, do do arachnids sleep? Do they need to sleep? That's a
1: great question, actually. Um, <laughs> I don't know. It reminds me, actually, of when I was uh, an undergrad and... Someone asked me that question, do you see stars sleep? And I was like, how would you know? <laughs> uh, but um, I actually don't know because what is the purpose of sleep? But and in, we're, not, we're still not we're 100% still not clear, clear, clear on that. Actually. So <laughs> whether or not we'd expect it in other organisms yeah. is unknown.
2: I mean, all I can imagine is one, one of the purposes of sleep is to clear uh, waste metabolites from your brain. Um, but that doesn't. I'm not. I'm not sure exactly how that applies well, d- d- to. Arachnids. Sleep
1: actually been encountered in anything outside of mammals, maybe birds. Yeah, I, I mean, mean they study. They actually yeah. study
2: sleep in flies. Um, really? Yeah, they do with Drosophila. Okay. That's uh, so cool. So uh, I mean, they probably do. Is it? Yeah. But is it
1: like a half a brain asleep and the other half a brain asleep kind of thing, or is um, it?
2: No, I. I'm not exactly <laughs> sure how they do it. Usually, the way they they measure it is just activity they literally stop they just stop like they're almost <laughs> always going around doing things yeah and they just stop so that you you have this activity meter and it's just do they you could probably I, I i bet you they there's probably a way to study in, in in arachnids but i'm not sure that that's
0: like a field i don't know i've never <laughs> never looked it up thing or, is i think i don't know like i'm not a biologist so do not like quote me on this but i think i've once seen and i swear i got seen a bee fall asleep on the hood of a car it was the strangest <laughs> thing. It was sure. I don't know if anyone remember the tw- the eclipse that happened in 2017. That yep. was in Idaho when it happened, and it went pitch, almost pitch black. And we went back to our van to leave, and there was just one honeybee just lying there, not really moving, just resting. Very emotionally, I thought, do animals just think it just went nighttime and everyone went to sleep? Because <laughs> <laughs> even the cows were doing it in the field. They thought, oh, it's dark. Yes, it's bedtime now. And then it gets light again. And they get really confused. Well, that's uh-huh. the thing is,
1: is there uh, resting? Versus sleeping, right? Uh, it's, it's, hard, it's hard to yeah. know because you mm-hmm. say with the flies, yeah. you get non-motion. But is that just I need to conserve my energy? Yeah. So, I, this is a whole other topic <laughs> I know nothing about, but it's very interesting.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I mean, moving from topic to topic is what tends to happen sometimes. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, like you said, you have side projects on yeah. the go.
1: Working, uh, actually, side products have been on um, black widow spiders of different species. So uh, black widows come in, oh, gosh, I want to say four flavors or species. So when you say, sorry, it's, it's, it's actually a common thing we use around the lab. We say, like, what flavor of fly is this? And we mean with species. Um, So in Canada, I've worked on a Canadian species called the Western Black Widow spider, which goes from very southern BC all the way down to Texas. And I've worked on um, the redback spider, uh, which is the Australian redback spider, which uh, has been introduced to Japan. So we're looking at the differences between the two populations.
2: Introduced Aussies came in and said, "Hey, look what I got for you—spiders." <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, Australia's known. I mean, hey, if they really wanted to mess up uh, another country, they—they they have more dangerous spiders than black widows. So,
2: wow. So yeah. wait, so the black widow you studied—this was a dangerous one?
1: Well, it's—it's. It's, um, you talk to any ar- arachnologist, and you'll ask them, "Have they ever been bitten by a spider?" And they'll just say, "No." because no I haven't I, I go through you know the precautions and everything but slowly over time I just go yeah I don't need that no I don't need that really it comes down to uh, if you see a spider and you're gonna pick it up don't like pinch it because uh. Uh, that spider thinks you're grabbing it to eat it yeah. so they'll do everything they can to defend themselves a lot of, um, I hear about, you know, widow bites and stuff like that often come from, because they, they they hide. And if you reach under and grab something where they're hiding, they may bite because they think you're attacking them. Mm. So it's kind of like most animals, if you corner them and grab them, they're not going to like it. But I have definitely had, uh, uh, not here, but I've definitely had like a black widow just climb on me and... More, I more is more afraid of the damage I do to it than it would do to me.
0: So if you were to pick it up, it's more like just you leave your hand in front of it and just wait for it to come to you or
1: I just because I just don't want to risk anything, I tend to just uh I get like a little a little cup and a and a brush and I just brush oh. it into the cup, just nudge it into her and then I put it where it needs to go and
2: seems brushes are the the go-to tool for people working with
0: spiders insects yeah oh and yeah
1: of it's, sort it's, and all well, sorts they're so gentle we, we we've got clumsy human meat hands you know <laughs> <laughs> uh. brushes are just are wonderful because it's a nice you know gentle extension to uh um and you know we we don't want to harm them we don't want to stress them out anymore we don't want them to think we're attacking them we just want to get them into a one cup or another <laughs>
2: It seems your life has changed a lot since you've been in grad school, and and discovered this passion <laughs> for arachnids.
1: Well, I have always been interested in species that are um, that people tend to draw away from. So, growing up, my favorite animals on the planet from age six on were sharks. I wanted to study sharks. I wanted to be a shark researcher. I wanted everything. I want everything to do with sharks. That was my life. And I still am incredibly passionate about them, but I know that sometimes studying them can mean harming them, and I couldn't do that. So shark conservation is one of my passions. And then I moved on to, um, in my master's, I studied sea slugs. These are the ones that were eaten by the kelp crab. So these sea slugs come in such beautiful colors, and they're gorgeous. But when you say sea slug to someone, they go, ugh. Is that like the ones I get in my garden? And I'm like, well, no, they're in the sea. <laughs> and a garden slug doesn't handle salt very well. So they're very different. But, yeah, good point. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I hadn't thought
2: about that. <laughs> yeah, like, they must be totally different.
1: They are, actually. they uh, Land slugs and land snails are one group. So land slugs evolved from land snails, whereas sea slugs evolved from sea snails. So they split quite a long time ago. And one group went on to land, and one group stayed in the ocean. Um, but, yeah, the sea slugs, the moor. Oh, if you want to see the most beautiful and some very adorable animals, look at them. They're beautifully colored. And it became my mission to introduce people to these beautiful things and to not be repulsed by it. So when I got the opportunity to work with another group that uh, of animals that people tend to go, ugh. Um, I I really really jumped on it, and I vi- big advocate for uh, for appreciation of arachnids, and th- and that's the other thing is arachnids is not just spiders, arachnids mm. include scorpions like I said, and the mm-hmm. pseudoscorpions that I worked on. If you ever want to read about them, there, there's a BBC Earth article online about them. Just uh, you can Google that. I think. Uh,
2: i'd really never heard of them like where are they
0: yeah i've never heard of that either
1: (laughs) some people say they found some in their their um uh bathrooms but they're they're small enough that most people don't seem to notice them Mm. but just imagine like a a stumpy animal but with like claws that are so big that they look like they'll tip over (laughs) and which was pretty fun they're generally again really small about two three millimeters long tiny and the ones that we found uh, up in the arctic were stream side so you flip over the rocks and (laughs) there'd be a few of them under and again use the paintbrush (laughs) to get them into the tubes and um oh they really found a place in my heart they're pretty cute the best way to move them around because they're pretty flat too is get them kind of mad at your paintbrush so they pinch onto it and then they (laughs) you literally just pick them up like they're hanging off the bottom of a helicopter in an action film Uh. (laughs) and move them to where you need to go um yeah so really cool species and this um especially because this is a what's known as a Beringian relic it means that um Beringia is a region in um Yukon and Alaska of course uh Siberia and um down into some places in in like northern asia there and uh it was not glaciated in the last ice age because the, there was enough moisture and snow for it to have the glaciers that have you know extended down north america so that area is kind of like a like a lost world of animals that with that survived that period so these Little pseudoscorpions were around with like the woolly mammoths and the giant beavers and all that stuff, but you know, less famous, not so much showing up in the ice age movies or anything.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say, I mean, who knows? Could be in the next one, I don't know yeah. what, what which <laughs> number they're on now, probably somewhere
0: along the chain. Yeah, train. could be an It'd ice be age the, seven,
1: the, the micro ice age, like I mean, all the things small that 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 there it lived is, around them. They were just,
0: age. they were frozen, waiting, and now is their time, yeah, to rise <laughs> yeah.
1: <laughs> and eat smaller things, like springtails, they might find under the rocks.
2: So, um, I mean, as, like, looking out for these animals and, and making sure that they're not, like, uh, hurt, you know, you're, you're very delicate with them, with the brush, and, uh, and and all the animals you've spoken about, you've talked about how to, like, appropriately handle them and, and, uh, and not hurt them while studying them. That's important. Um, how do you feel about people having any of these arachnids as pets? Like, should they, or...? How do they do that is that okay with the animals because it's not it's a different environment right it's not this cool spot that you said they've been (laughs) in for millennia
1: (laughs) yeah i guess they miss the open ranges of the arctic but uh it's hard to say how much these animals uh, understand about their range right and how much range they actually have and that's another issue with winter collection is where are you going to find them and if you collect animals in the summer and you want to kind of put them in what they call a field cage outside, so you keep them in a cage, and you can collect them through the winter. How much space do they need? How are you can get food to them? All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But a lot of pets tend to be um, bred by people like you know in their houses, and uh, those are mostly the big tarantulas and mm-hmm. um, the scorpions and the cool critters like that. Um, it's kind of a hard thing for my for me to. Th- Think of ethically because you know uh, I actually have a tarantula, but this was a rescue tarantula that someone didn't want anymore, so I I got it that way. And so there's actually, if you're interested in those as pets, to look at where people are trying to give them away because they don't realize how long like a tarantula can live 15 to 20 years. So think about what you're going to be doing in that time. They're not a lot of commitment, I can tell you that. They don't take a lot of time. Out of your life, and I think my biggest concern is for people taking things from the wild and Mm. selling them as pets, and that's for any any animal really. But there are people who breed them.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So what we have so far in breeding colonies around the world, ready for pets, that's good. Uh, That's fine. But don't add any more to that population.
1: Let's Let's yeah
0: leave them where they are. I mean,
1: about every animal, you know, if it's a wild animal, keep it wild.
0: Sometimes it just were not meant to be domesticated. You know, well, I can
1: tell you, my tarantula, she, sometimes, if she doesn't want to do anything, she, um, so tarantulas, their defense is they kick off hairs, um, and she just kicks off her hairs at me, and when she does that, I'm like, oh, great, because they're really hard. They stick into your fingers, and if you get them into your eyes, they'll stick into your eyes, and so you have to get, like, masking tape on your hands, oh. try to get all the hairs off, and... Honestly, spiders have definite, tarantulas have definite personalities. My friend had a tarantula that we, um, called Fluffy and I was at her house at a party and Fluffy was out hanging out with people and I had him on my lap and I just stood there petting him for like an hour. And he's just cool with that. Um, one of his
0: lifelong dreams was to be a cat. (laughs) True. (laughs) But then you have
1: some that are just like, nope, don't want anything to do with you.
0: Well, maybe
2: maybe your next study could be uh, arachnid personality.
1: <laughs> that would be a lot of fun. see.
0: <laughs> so you, you could start the field. biology and psychology cross. You have to understand the mind of a tarantula and other I mean, spiders. Isn't so we...
2: psychobiology a thing? <laughs> I mean,
0: I,
1: I no reason why you
2: can't invent a field. There's no reason why not.
1: I think they just call it animal behavior, which always sounds funny because psychology is just animal behavior, but of one of only one animal, humans.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so... If people want to study you, well, not study you, <laughs> but, f- but hear about you and, uh, and see more about what you're doing, uh, where can they find you on the interwebs, so to speak?
1: Absolutely. Um, I keep a, like my professional Twitter, so I'll probably shout out some things about spiders, uh, and that's at, at Anthony. so that's at S-U-Z-A-N-T-H-O-N-Y, if you'd like to know more about me for the next little while, I think I still will have my email. It's santho2 at Um And I'm happy to talk about spiders uh, and all kinds of arachnids and uh, working in the north, which is something that I think uh, we need to do more. We need to know more about what's going on in our north.
0: Yeah, I think we definitely really need to. So we have been talking with biology PhD candidate, student Anthony. Thank you very much for being on the show again. Uh, I am your host, uh, Gavin Tolomay. Co-hosting with me is Ariel Frame. Uh, This has been GradCast, the production of the Society of Graduate Students here at Western University on CHRW at 94.9 FM. If you want to know more about GradCast and download our podcast and listen, you can go to gradcast.ca. You can also find our podcasts on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you get your daily podcasts. And if you'd like to come on the show as a guest, you can contact us at gradcastradio at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening tonight, and good night.
1: Good night. (laughs) Good night.